welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Good evening, David. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Life is good. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Of course. It's, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. So you're someone who clearly is very busy these days. You've, you've written four books. You have a book that just came out right now, and you're also a professor of leadership. Uh, so I have to ask this first one. As somebody who has just written a book about growing your network, when you are at the obligatory networking events and somebody asks you the age old question of what do you do? How do you respond? I'm trying to figure out why I would be at one of those events. And, <laughs> and, and I'm trying, I'm, and I'm trying to, I mean, I hate that question. We have stuff in the book about how much I hate that question. However, yeah. I still get that question. And sure. so, um, I actually, the way that I answer it now is actually the way that my six-year-old answered it one time when somebody asked him, what does daddy do? And he said, he makes books, he gives talks and he takes care of us. And I thought that's a great, <laughs> that's a great answer. That is basically everything I do. I mean, I, at its core, what I'm trying to do with all of my work, whether it be writing, speaking, uh, teaching a class, et cetera, mm -hmm. I'm trying to take good ideas from the world of social science, from real empirical research and trying to put tool, put like trying to treat it like a tool, like trying to fashion it so that I can put a handle on it and hand it to somebody that they know how to use it. Mm -hmm. Right. So trying to bring those good. I, I often call it trying to get ideas out of the ivory tower and into the corner office or the co-working space or the coffee shop, wherever people are getting work done. Yeah. Oh, good. No, that's, that's fantastic. It's great that you mix both the academic along with the real world. That's fantastic. So I'd like to start actually from your beginning. So what made you want to study creative writing as an undergrad? Wow. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it was it was a pool that was sort of always there. I have this cool thing in my um, thankfully my parents kept it. But somewhere in one of my file drawers, there's this thing from like second grade that was an assignment about making a book. And, you know, the story's terrible because I'm in second grade. But it was that idea of like, I'm going to make a book. Meaning I'm going to staple, like I'm going to draw a bunch of things and then staple the corners together and call it a book type thing. And it was always sort of doing stuff like that. And yeah. around, um, you know, in, in high school was when English and literature and writing, et cetera, was sort of the, the community or the subject that I found, um, a home in. In fact, even back then I was, um, I was fascinated with sort of publishing, right? So I worked for our school newspaper and I learned how to professionally lay out, you know, a newspaper. And then I went over, you know, that was like the newspaper met Monday nights. On Tuesday nights, I went over to the literary magazine and I taught all of those people how to use the skill that I just learned in newspaper. And it was the first time we had like a real professionally well done looking, uh, literary mag too for that school. So it was sort of always there. The, the big revelation happened when I was in university, when I was an undergrad and I'm looking at all of this thing. And that's when you sort of two things happen. The first is that you have this realization that most of your your heroes in the literary world starved um, and a lot of them committed suicide. And so yeah. it's not right. They're not really the best role models. They're really right. not. Um, 
<laughs> and the, the 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 people that sort of made a successful life were sellouts either because they went on to like teach or because they went like James Patterson and they turned into a factory, right? Right. Um, so that leaves this sort of so that was one realization. The the other one was that there were people doing things in writing that I had never heard of until I was you know, 18, 19 in college. So mm-hmm. I was in university the year that I'm actually, I have to look this up. I keep saying <laughs> a year. I have no idea if it was the year. Um, but somewhere when I was in university, somebody handed me a copy of the tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell's first book. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it and, and thinking, wow, this is an incredibly talented storyteller who also has these really interesting insights from the world of social science. And, you know, Gladwell's not all that prescriptive. He doesn't have a lot of takeaways and tools, but it was right. still like you can blend these two communities. And then like you go and, and you look and you find out that he gets paid to go give talks. Whereas like, you know, novelists are begging to give talks at bookstores. right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you start to realize like there's a real, there's a business model here too, not just writing. So that was, um, that became my fascination, not just with the subject of um, I, I went on to grad school to study organizational psychology. So not just that sort of subject, but also this idea that like there's a real business here. So that was really the big pivot. And then I've been trying to execute on that pivot ever since. Yeah, well, that's great. So you have a so a very interesting turn. So you you know went on to, to get your master's degree um, and then got your doctorate. And then it looks like perhaps one of your first jobs maybe in between – you getting your uh, your doctorate and your master's that you worked for as a pharmaceutical representative. Yeah, so you, you like you have to my LinkedIn in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> I do my I like to do my research. So yes, I yeah, I, I am well, also no. looking at your LinkedIn at the same time because I'm it. I'm fascinated by that. So how yeah. how has working as a pharmaceutical representative kind of a, you know helped your career afterward, or did it help your career after? Well, I had to eat and, and it, I did say it helped. So, so I mean, here's, here's essentially the story. So the other thing that happened to me in university life is that I met a girl and we decided to get married and we actually, we got married. Uh, we're recording this the day after our anniversary. We got married the day after our college graduation, which I do not recommend. Um, <laughs> wow. not because like it's too soon to get married or whatever. I yeah. don't care about, that. but just like it was an incredibly stressful week yeah. and we just, slept like 18 hours a day for five days in a row. We actually, for our, this is a total like side trail, but it's kind of funny for our second anniversary. We went on the same cruise that we went on for our, our honeymoon, same boat, same itinerary, same everything, because we had been, we had slept through our whole honeymoon (laughs) because we were so exhausted from what we called the graduating. Right. So, um, so, so she also, um, so we got married. The reason we got married the day after graduation is we wanted to maximize our time together because she had been accepted and was going to medical school. Okay. So like mid August when medical school started, I knew I like, uh, you're going to work 80 hours a week. I'm never going to see you again. So I got a job when you're married to a, a med student, it becomes really easy to talk people in interviews into the fact that like, okay, I, I know I don't have any background in medical science whatsoever, but I'm like, I studied English and communication and I'm savvy and charismatic and I can learn all that stuff because I have a wife that yeah. I can go on study dates with. So I convinced them to sort of take that chance on me. And so I worked as a pharmaceutical rep and I went to grad school um, evenings and weekends. So I did my master's degree alongside all of that. Um, Daichi, thank you. I actually paid for some of it. Thank you very much, pharmaceutical company I worked for. Um, That's great. And then went on even into a doctoral program sort of part time. A lot of it was driven by, you know, you got to do what you can with what you have where you are. And so a lot of my decisions early career were driven by the fact that like, medical school and residency mattered more than how I build a platform and how I grow my experiences and become a writer. So I was, 
Um, I was in the pharmaceutical industry for my, my plan was to be in there for a decade plus mm-hmm. and then, um, one interesting thing happened, um, when I was in a doctoral program, uh, the affordable care act got signed, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, love, love it or hate it. There are people still are, have highly polarized positions on it. I have, I have no interest in, in engaging either side, but it definitely changed the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I, I saw when that happened was I, I was sort of like, all right, well, I have to find a new plan because my prior plan of do this while I grow in my experience, build a platform, write for places and then come out with a book is clearly not going to work anymore. So I need to find something else. And so when you're when you uh, have a master's degree and half of a doctoral degree and you need to find a pivot, you become a university professor. So I started adjuncting. Um, eventually that turned into a full time offer. And I always I call myself an accidental professor. Like a lot of people look at my career and think that, oh, it's a logical transition. You were yeah. a professor. Now you write about books from social. But like it was really the fact that my first plan had failed because of economic changes. And I, and that was the only thing left I was qualified to do while that would also allow me to do that thing that I wanted to do all along, mm-hmm. which is write books and travel around and speak and do all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah some of it is, is you, you've got that plan. You've got to be adaptable to change it. But you've also you got to build a plan that works for where you are right now. Otherwise, you just go, oh, well, I'll never be able to start because I have all these things away. Like none of those things are are excuses. They're just, okay, now that I, now I understand the constraints of the problem, the borders of uh, that in which I'll find a solution, it's time to go to work. Yeah. All right. So while you're doing all this, this process, you also had a radio show. Is that correct? Uh, so I had a, I've had a podcast for about eight years. I just shut okay. it down last September. So, oh, okay. so, what, um, so this was like what, 2010. So this was like more the early first, days. First episode was Jan, first episode was January, 2010. I sound like a hipster when I say it, but I was yeah. doing podcasting before. <laughs> Before they were cool. Good <laughs> on you for that one. So no, what? I mean, yeah. the, it was very much a part of um, the strategy to build a platform. So I was writing, yes, but there's a lot of people writing. I also, I mean, I, I live in a part of the world that makes the most populated cities in America possible. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma is the 47th most populated city in America. So it's not exactly the literary hub of New York City. It's not exactly San Francisco, the hub of innovation, right? So you've got to be very deliberate about making connections. And one of the things that I realized was like, hey, this medium's kind of new. It's, it's actually, if you're remotely tech savvy, even in 2010, it was pretty easy to figure out the hurdles but nobody was doing it. And so we started it in like the the first two seasons of the show, guests would call into a conference call line mm-hmm. and I would record it through the conference call line and then put music on either end. And it was a podcast and it was the like 15th business podcast ever. Huh. Um, we called it Leader Lab until we got a cease and desist letter from the guy that owned the trademark for Leader Lab. <laughs> <laughs> And we, then we changed the name to um, Radio Free Leader, which is what it was for uh, until September of last year. And really, I mean, I, I'm not done with it as a whole. I love the medium. Mm-hmm. I just have so much I need to do in relation to kind of this book that I knew I couldn't do a quality job. And the bar has been raised significantly. So when uh, we're trying to sort of lay down that plan of how do we come back and be at the quality level of all of these other places, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it well. So we're kind of in hiatus for that, waiting to put a plan together on that. But it was a, it was a tremendous tool, not just for building a platform, but predominantly for building and growing a network of the people that I aspired to be. I mean, I, I remember the second interview ever was Daniel Pink, who is my, you know, role model in this whole thing. And we spent more time talking on the phone after we'd recorded the episode than before because I was peppering with questions about, you know, how do you do this thing called being an author, right? Mm-hmm. So I got I got to learn from some amazing mentors about their book, but then also about this sort of business side of it. Um, 
because of that show. So it was, it was a brilliant thing. And it, it was, um, I still love the medium. You can tell because I've got like a, I'm not just recording this with a pair of earbuds. I've got some cool equipment. Um, I, I love I love the medium and and it's been really useful to me um, for for doing that. And I, it's something I still encourage. Even now the noise level is higher. There's more out there, but it's still one of the I think one of the best ways to build an audience while also building out a network of connections of the people that you want to work with. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's true. And and I will agree. Your uh, your sound you're coming through loud and clear. So clearly you have a quality microphone you're speaking into right now. Thanks. I was on uh, I was on the Jordan Harbinger show a couple weeks ago, and producer Jason was making fun of me because I have a I have a Blue Yeti, which is the in my opinion the nicest microphone that you can plug via USB into a computer. You get any nicer, and you've got to use XLR cables and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. he was making fun of me because he didn't consider it a quality microphone. <laughs> well, I've also got a Blue Yeti, so. And you sound fantastic as well. So well, there we you. go. This pod, by the way, this this podcast episode is sponsored by Yeti. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> get a Blue Yeti, the nicest microphone you can get, but just by plugging into your computer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to email them afterwards and tell them, hey, this episode's coming, and you need to sponsor it. <laughs> you totally should. Okay, so uh, then in 2013, you came out with a book called The Myths of Creativity. Yes, because when you have a leadership podcast, the smartest thing to do in the world is write a book about creativity. Right. So, what, yeah, what made you want to write a book about creativity? So I I pick what to write about. Um, again, I'm trying to bridge that gap between uh, research and social science, between academia and practice. And one of the biggest gaps I saw was in the realm of creativity. Uh, psychologists and and um, uh, sociologists and behavior, everybody in social science has been studying creativity for probably 70, 80, if not 90 years. And yet so much of that research has not migrated over into how people do things, right? Mm-hmm. Th- th- there's some, there's some companies that are sort of in line with the research by default. A lot of industrial design firms, so IDEO, Continuum, et cetera, are, are in line with the research, but it's by trial and error. And then there's a lot of like the, the work world of 2018 even would look so different. It would look so much less like Dilbert and so much more like a place where people wanted to come if people were actually in line with this research. And so that was the first big kind of area to attack. That was, so that was reason number one. Mm-hmm. Um, reason number two was I was 28 years old. Who's going to read a leadership book from a 28? <laughs> so, so yeah, we had true. to. We right no totally so we we had to pick like okay what are the what are the topics where there is a big gap and then what are the topics that somebody in my position in my place can really speak to mm-hmm. and so that was that was the one and it was a I mean it was a fantastic one it was a really cool it was it just happened to be what I had done some of my dissertation research on so it was really easy to kind of use a lot of that in the book and actually the book came out only about nine months after I had finished my my dissertation. So um, I was working on both at the same time. Uh, and, and really, probably to this day, 25% of them, uh, there's content overlap about 12, about 25% between the two documents. Yeah. Um, so it was it was easy for that reason, too. But predominantly, it was that here's here's the biggest gap, let's attack that gap. Mm-hmm. And and then each book after that is, is kind of trying to do the same thing. Where is there a place where common wisdom and what even what people would call common sense is actually sort of wrong, and here's the research to prove why. That's that's what I I really enjoy writing about and speaking about. So that's what we've been doing ever since. Creativity just happened to be the first one. Sure. Okay. So as as somebody who then who does keep very busy right now and balances between those those two, how, how do you manage your your time right now? Do you have like a set time of day where you're writing 
uh, in between classes or, or what's your average day look like? Is there an average day, I guess, is the first part. So, uh, so it's a bit unfair. So uh, in, in, um, in spring of 2016, so after under new, under new management came out, I'm sorry, spring of 2017, in, in spring of 2016, under new management came out talking about that, leading all of, all of the invitations to work with companies and all that sort of stuff happened kind of afterwards. And in spring of 2017, uh, I, I probably came really close to Hemingway, right? I, if you, and if you know Hemingway's <laughs> life outcomes, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, that wasn't that serious, but like okay. it was a crazy stressful time in my life. Yeah. Uh, we had, we had two kids, we were building a house. So there was all of that, um, struggle. I, I gained probably 30 pounds just trying to just keep everything afloat and travel and, you know, eating in, in airports and hotel breakfasts and all that sort of stuff, just not being able to work out enough, et cetera. It was just a crazy stressful time. And so I went around that time. I also went to the university and I was like, we've, we got to do something. I cannot, I will not come back if you're still requiring these sort of same things. And, you know, I don't do any, really any research, um, academically anymore because, Mm -hmm. um, I find it boring compared to being able to translate other people's research. No, it's true. It's something you got to learn how to do, but then I would rather tell a really good story wrapped around research that helps people put it into practice than Mm -hmm. go do new research. Everybody has their sort of thing. So, um, and then teaching, even getting that teaching load, I had it sort of all reduced and I'm in a role now where I still have a faculty appointment. I don't get paid anywhere near as much as I used to to be a faculty member, Mm -hmm. but I still get to use that title. I teach one class a semester, I'm working on advising them on building a couple programs and then doing kind of the beginnings of what of what our, our university's executive education program. So I, I, dramat- I said no to a lot of stuff when things got really busy. Um, so now I do have a regular routine and it's a little more writer speaker focused. So okay. uh, for the average day for me now. So the reason I say all of that is to tell you that teaching really only comes into play Monday afternoons from about from about 12:30 to about 7 p.m. That's when I'm on campus doing all of my university related stuff. Okay. Tuesday Tuesday through Friday my schedule looks like I wake up whenever one kid or another kicks me in the face and then get them ready for school. They go off to school and after we drop the them off at the bus and at school, um I come down into my office and I I write or I work on whatever sort of creative project is going on. Usually it's writing either the book or writing articles that will be used to promote the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that until about 10.30. Um, there's nothing special about 10.30 other than that the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy that I train at uh, most days uh, has their 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 morning practices at 11. And so that's <laughs> when I meet all the guys there and work out. Then I get back, um, and once I get showered and get some food and all that sort of stuff, I'm back in my office about 1, and then I do all of the reactive work. Um, and that's just the schedule that works for me. The the big thing, and I kind of learned this from um, Cal Newport, is that I separate out the reactive work, emails, podcasts, phone calls with people, all of that stuff. That all happens in the afternoon after I've done that one thing, gotten the words that I need to get or edited the the audio show or video or wh- whatever creative thing that I'm working on, whatever project I'm on now. I do that first thing and I do that in uninterrupted sort of deep work to use Cal's term. Mm-hmm. And then after that's over, then go to the gym and it's sort of like a mental stage transition. It's also just when it's open um, for, me, <laughs> for me to do that. And then when I come back, then I can safely get into all of that reactive work. Okay. Um, and if, you know, if, if I um, have more uh, time at the end of that, I usually don't. I might go back and write a little bit more, but usually that afternoon is full of all that sort of stuff by the time uh, I'm usually not there. My, my um, mom, helps us she moved to kind of she lives uh, in a different neighborhood but really close to us and helps us with the kids until about 4:35, 35 
and then usually I, I come and, and kind of interact with them and get some, some cool time with them before we're off to some other kid things. So that, that's my average non-travel for speaking day. And the only, I think the only lesson that people can really draw from that, um, is, well, A is that you should do jujitsu because it's an amazing sport. Um, but B, you should separate out your deep work time from your reactive work time because trying to get them to work together is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So is the, 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 the Cal Newport book about that deep work, is that the, is, the best version that you've read about, I guess, time management in that sense? Yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah. And then, so the, the, I really, it was really a one, two punch for me. Yeah. Um, it was, it, again, it was in this spring when it, life was just crazy because I was trying to do all of this stuff. I read, um, Cal's book. So I read deep work and then I read Greg McEwen's essentialism kind of back to back. Mm-hmm. And it, Cal's was the jab, uh, and you know Greg's was this the straight right that knocked me on the canvas and like I need to eliminate a lot of stuff in my life. But it started with that idea of I need to carve space out to do these important things, or I'm going to be reacting and reacting and reacting, and then I'm going to come to the end of my email inbox and realize that I have created nothing for months on end, and no one wants to hear from me because the well is dry, right? right so right. that was that was the big realization around work schedule. And then Greg's was the the big realization around that means I'm going to have to cut a lot of stuff out if I'm going to survive. Okay, good. Good to know. So let's then talk about your your book that just came out yesterday, Friend of a Friend. Uh, So what terrible advice do you hear being said all the time (laughs) about growing your network? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I don't know where to start. I'll start (laughs) start with this. And I even used this term in our interview earlier um, and it's, I think fundamentally at, at its core, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how networks work. You'll hear people say things like build your network, grow your network, improve your network. It's not your network. You don't own a network. You exist inside of a network, the community that you want to interact with, the industry that you work in, where, wherever you know, you're trying to be impactful in what you do, that network already exists and you're privileged to be a part of it. And the, the pr- appropriate response is to better understand that network. Who's, who are you connected to? Who's a friend? Who's connected to who? Who's a friend of a friend? This is where the title comes from, mm-hmm. right? And, and where are you just sort of geographically almost in that network and then respond accordingly. And the way that you, you, as you start to do that, as you start to pay attention to the whole network, as you create value sort of for that whole network, not just try and run up the count, um, you end up with a much more valuable strategy. I think all, I mean, there's a there's a myriad of bad advice. Mm-hmm. The so what do you do question is is sort of one of them, right? But they all stem from this idea that the goal should be to run up the number of contacts that you have on your phone or or on LinkedIn connections you have on LinkedIn or whatever, and that's a recipe for disaster. The best approach is to understand that you exist inside of a network, and if you're gonna impact it in any way, you've got to better understand it. And so the whole goal of the book then is to teach. Here's what we know from network science about how networks work. So you can kind of audit where you are now and where you need to go based on that. Mm -hmm. So with with what you've written in your book, does it matter if somebody is, I guess, introverted versus extroverted on how they approach growing their network and, and thriving within this system? Well, you know, and, in, and no, but if it does matter, the evidence might actually be in favor of introverts. So, so when, again, if, if the goal is to run up your count, yeah. then it seems like it's an extroverts game because they're the ones that are going to be energized in that big room full of people. Yeah. They're the ones that are going to reach out to lots of people and they're the ones that are going to make lots of superficial connections to lots of people. Mm-hmm. But one of the principles we know from network science is this weird principle called multiplexity, um, which is a 
two dollar SAT word, if ever there were one. <laughs> yeah. um, and a, a, a multiplex tie refers to the context for of connection, that the number of contexts you have to connect with somebody. So if you just know someone from work, mm-hmm. they're a uniplex tie in the language. If you know someone from work and then you also share sort of the same hobby and your kids go to the same school, that's a multiplex tie. You have a couple different reasons for connecting to that person. You know them from a couple different facets. And the research is strongly suggestive that you will build a deeper relationship faster with someone if you build a multiplex tie than a uniplex tie. Hmm. Now, think about extroverts versus introverts. Mm-hmm. Introverts, it's, it's, introverts aren't hermits, right? They're not, they're not, they don't hate people. Mm-hmm. They like people. They just don't get any energy from being in a crowded room full of people. They'd rather either be alone or with two or three other people that they trust. Introverts are more likely to have the types of conversations that lead to multiplexity. Mm-hmm. And extroverts are like, to run up the number of connections they have, but to just have lots of uniplex ties. Long term, I would rather have a smaller uh, community of people around me that know me well and that I know them well, because that's more valuable in terms of what we call social capital Mm -hmm. than just know a bunch of people, have a bunch of contacts on my phone or a bunch of people telling me what they're doing on on Instagram, right? That's not going to help as much as this deep, rich connections that come from that. So so know how, however you're built, there's a strategy for you. I okay. actually think the one that introverts are built for works better. And so extroverts, what you've got to learn how to do is go, okay, this is good. It's great that you get energy meeting a lot of, lots of people, but you've got to slow down and take mm-hmm. the time to get to know them. Humans are multifaceted creatures and we need to be multifascinated with them as well. Yeah. Is there, and maybe this is an individual thing, but is there like a magic number? that people of connection somebody should have to to better i guess be part of a network or is it is it an individualistic type of thing yeah it's 150 didn't you read glad no i'm totally curious <laughs> um so so when we i mean when you say magic number though most people yeah. if they've read gladwell or they're familiar with this research they go to what we call dunbar's number mm-hmm. which is kind of a faulty number um dunbar made an estimate that the number is 150 um, that clearly can't be accurate because in later surveys using better technology and better research methods, the average number of connections someone has is closer to around 660 or so. Um, but I should say when I use the term average, I'm not talking about a normative distribution, which is a fancy scientific way of describing that inverted U on a graph. Like there's not it's not a percentile thing with standard deviations. It's actually a power law. It's a Pareto principle. Mm-hmm. And so some people have and are capable of having a disproportionate number of connections into the thousands and other people are going to cluster to a little bit closer. So some of that is from your own personality and kind of what you can handle and what stage of life that you're in. The other, the other reason for that is, is uh, another interesting network science phenomenon called preferential attachment, which basically says that the more connections you have, the easier it is to make new connections because your existing connections are going to be introducing you to people. Um, I, what I think the, the reason I bring up preferential attachment is I think mm-hmm. most people, when they think about networking and their networks, they think um, wherever they are, they feel like they could use a bit more because they're staring up the the power law curve of a Pareto principle and looking at those uber connected people and thinking I should be like that. But I also that comes so much easier to someone else. Well, 
all that person's done is is write, written out preferential attachment for a longer period of time. So as long as you're putting in the work, it'll get there. The rate at which it'll get there probably has something to do with what you're capable of. So it's okay if it seems like it's ta- taking slower than you. But it's much more um, – it's not an average uh, normative distribution. It's a power law, and how fast you ascend that power law really kind of depends on on you – and so just kind of pay attention to what's too many, where you're drowning in context, et cetera. You'll, you will eventually get to the point where it's too many. Even my, my buddy Jason Gaynard, who runs an amazing event and probably has in the tens of thousands of connections, now will often say that his key to networking now is subtraction, not addition, <laughs> figuring out who to let go yeah. of. Um, which is a great problem to have, but it's a very one percenter of all networks problems to have. Right. right. But it does show you that everyone eventually gets to that point, I think, where they have to kind of scale it back. So you have to know you and what you're capable of and what feels like too much. Yeah. So when you are, I guess, in this mode and trying to grow your network, do you need to have a specific reason to want to meet somebody or is it OK to meet people just to meet people just to see what happens organically? Yes. <laughs> Fair I enough. It's 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 perfectly acceptable, and in fact, it's probably better yeah. when you are like say going to that event or joining a, an activity or attending a conference or something like that to not go with an agenda in mind and and just kind of and not because then you won't prejudge people when you meet them. So the problem right. with going to a lot of those events is when you have a specific thing in mind, like you definitely want to um, meet a certain person or you definitely want to meet a certain type of person. You become that jerk that we all hate that's looking over the shoulder while they're conversing with one person for another potential conversation because they've already prejudged the person they're in front of to not be valuable, right? Mm-hmm. We all hate that person, and the truth is we're all that person from time to time when we show up to that type of an event with an agenda. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's better to be open-ended in that context. On the okay. other hand, I don't think it's a good idea to ask for an introduction to someone without a specific reason why both of you would benefit from connecting with each other. So, you know, it's not like if, if I know Richard Branson, don't ask me to introduce you to Richard Branson just because it'd be cool to take a selfie with him and tell your friends, you know, Richard Branson. Right. Yeah. That's not going to help anyone. And it's definitely not going to help you. Right. So have a reason for that type of connection, the introduction sort of connection. But I think it's probably better to be. And this is, again, based on that sort of idea of multiplexity, et cetera. It's probably better to be open minded if you're going to the events to meet people to have an open mind on who you can meet. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good to know. So in your own career along this journey, what would you say has been the best investment you've ever made? Um. So I truthfully, I mean, I, I, I like my house. I laid it out in such a way that mm-hmm. um, I can get all of that work done. But the truth is choosing where it was. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is not a popular um, place in terms of number of I mean, it's a, it's a city of a million people, not 10 million or more like New York. So it's, it's big enough to be have everything that I want to do. Um, it's also small enough to have an incredibly low cost of living. And the, the key isn't to save money on cost of living. The key is to go, okay, I can reinvest some of that into being in lots of different places. And so I deliberately put myself in a lot of those other pockets because, I mean, the best – you already know the answer, the long answer, the short answer is – uh, the best investment I've made is in people and in relationships. I yeah. got that by deliberately choosing, okay, I'm going to save money on, on where I'm at so that I can be at more places over time. So I'm in okay. New York a couple times a year. I'm in DC a couple times a year, San Francisco a couple times a year and trying to meet people, but also reconnect with weak ties, et cetera, in that area. So, but I, I say that because it's, it's when you do it that way, it's a deliberate, it really is a deliberate investment. You could also, 
you can also just pick to live in New York City or San Francisco and a lot of it will happen organically for you. Yeah. Um, I choose to invest a lot of that time and energy in a couple different places because of where I need to be, uh, including where I live. But where I live allows affords me the ability to do all those other things. Yeah. Well, that's good. So at, at the times in your career or your journey where you hit a wall or you've become fearful about the next step, how what's your approach to fear and overcoming it? <sighs> That's a really interesting question. Um, I'm I'm kind of a meticulous planner, so the big the big moments for me aren't the fear of like here I I know this is what's coming or sort of it's not that I've hit a wall and I can't like manifest what I want. Mm -hmm. It's not knowing, so it's more like hitting a cliff than a wall, right? Right. right. Um, and usually uh, this is again where investments in relationships become one of the most valuable things. Usually that's when I turn to a lot of folks and, and I'll even use the term sometimes talk me off a cliff, which I know is a metaphor. Like we use it as a metaphor, but I really mean it because what I mean by cliff is not like I'm going to jump. Yeah. What I mean is I it's it's almost like that cliff end. Do you ever see Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Oh, yeah. It's almost it's almost like that cliff, right? I'm okay. looking at this thing. There's clearly some rock hidden here that I can't see. Mm -hmm. And I've just kind of figured out where that is on the path. And so I'll circle back to those people that I trust to kind of talk me um, back off that cliff and help me get kind of that good idea of here's where we go from here. Mm hmm. So in those instances, is it so? Is it is there like specific people that you reach out to? Are there also books that you like read that reinforce maybe uh, how you think about things? Um, so it's I would say it's people first, and then okay. it's books depending on what it is, right? So I'll what I'm what I'm trying to do, and it's not person, right? I mean, I I, mean, I, I talk to my wife about these issues more than anything else because yeah. that's what spouses are for, among other things. Um, but I'll talk to multiple different people and usually they'll give me multiple different ideas and then books and resources come as a way of exploring that path. Right. Okay. So, so for me, I mean, the most common thing is it's, it's subject around what to write a book about or an article about or, or how to craft a speech or, or do I need to change my business model somehow because one of those areas that I normally do is failing. Mm -hmm. So the books and the courses and the reading and the research usually comes after that conversation, after those conversations, when I've had some idea of this is the path that I need to explore, I'll explore it in that form. But it usually starts with those conversations and, and then goes to the content. Sure. So of the, the journey that you've had so far, what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? So the second time for the, the podcast and I interviewed Daniel Pink and again, mm -hmm. Dan is a, is a role model of mine and he's become a friend over time. Yeah. Um, I interviewed him, maybe it was the third time. I honestly can't remember. And I was, I was talking about a bunch of stuff. I was, it was after the interview, we were doing our normal sort of chit chat. How are things with you? What are you working on? Et cetera. And I said something, I don't even remember what I was frustrated about, but I was frustrated about something. And then I looked, I looked at him through the virtual camera because this was for a, a, a Skype uh, video interview. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, you know, what, what do you do? What would you do in this situation? And the very first thing he said is he goes, well, you got to remember that I've been doing this for 17 years and you've been doing it for two. So whatever I would tell you is not going to work for you. The biggest thing you need to do is give yourself a little more time before you allow yourself to get frustrated. And that's one of the lessons I've tried to sort of internalize is uh, I need to give myself a little bit longer runway. I think everybody that is um, trying to make an impact in the world feels that 
urgency to, to hustle, mm-hmm. but you also have to realize that it compounds over time. And so you have to give yourself a longer runway so you can have a better takeoff in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dan was sort of the first person to bring that into my mind, but a lot of, especially it was around the time my second book came out. A lot of it was that realization of like, this is a slow build. This is going to take time. This is going to be brick by brick. I need to give myself a, a little bit more time. And in fact, one of the things that I tell people um, often, I, I, I sort of say this idea that if, if I could describe my career goal, it would be to be the next next Dan. <laughs> and the reason I say next next is to remind myself that he is 15 years ahead of me on this road. Yeah. So somebody else is probably going to get next. And that's OK, because I'm deliberately giving myself a longer runway. <laughs> but whoever the next Daniel Pink is, yeah, I'm going to be the next her. <laughs> that's awesome. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to buy your book, see more about your work, and, and follow you along, what is the best place they can do to, to get to do that? Well, the single best place would be the show notes for this episode because um, you do an awesome job with that, and that's where we want everyone listening to go to because from there you can get links and all of that other stuff. Um, if you if you don't already check that out and subscribe to the show and all that kind of stuff, then davidburkus.com, B-U-R-K-U-S, is the second best place. But really, go to the show notes for your episode. I mean, it's, it's just great work. Support him. Get over there. Click over to that site. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate that. And, of course, I will put the links to all your things in the show notes. Yeah, now you're obligated because I'm sending everybody to your page. See see what I did there? Yeah, exactly. I I like (laughs) how you did that double bind. Nice work. Nice work indeed. Uh, But, again – No, it's one one former podcaster to a current podcaster. (laughs) I know. That's what I want. I want you to go to the show notes because I've taken the time to set – to collect all of the resources we've talked about. So go there. It's going to be the single best place to go. (laughs) That is very true. And again, I I appreciate it. So again, thank you, David, for taking the time. Uh, Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, Please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.